Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we join in communion with the overflowing font of mythos, play, and animated everything that is Sophie Strand. Sophie is a poet and writer with a focus on the history and religion and the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her poems and essays have appeared in numerous projects and publications, including The Dark Mountain Project, Poetry.org, and the magazine's unearthed, braided way, art papers, and entropy. Their newest book, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, is a potent retelling of classical European myths and masculine characters like Dionysus, Merlin, Jesus, and so many more. And I think it encourages men to put down the iron sword and pick up a myceliated vegetal thyrsus. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on The Mushroom Hour. Darren, thank you so much for having me, especially because a part of the research for this book was a long practice of listening to your podcast. So it feels like full circle. Oh, that is such an honor and so humbling. Uh, I'm so happy that The Mushroom Hour was able to to bring all these amazing experts and even find its way into your work. Well, I'm a huge fan of the book. Uh, I have to say I read it pretty feverishly, took lots of notes, and I think there's so much in there to get into. But before we dive into that world, I need to know the myth <laughs> behind the mythic storyteller. You know, Sophie, how did you kind of find this path of exploring religion and mythology? And then where did ecology come into, as, I mean, as best you can, cobble together some of this myth of Sophie Strand for us? So I was born into a family of religious and spiritual scholars who were really interested in ecology, not theology. So creating interfaith groups that harness spirituality with environmentalism and welcomed anyone of any faith. So, and my parents wrote about this, they wrote books, they did research papers, you know, they created groups. So I grew up in a house in the Catskills in the shadow of Overlook Mountain taking care of rescued animals like opossums and swans and raccoons and dogs and um, around rabbis and theologians and Theravadan Buddhist monks and religious scholars. <laughs> so it was like a compost heap of a lot of animals and plants and fungi and also a lot of people from different faiths thinking about what mythology and what religion, what, what role do they play in our lives. And I think that it gave me a kind of empathic plasticity whereby my parents really showed me it was important to honor the aliveness of different beings, be they mushrooms, be they insects, be they bacteria, and also to honor the different practices of different religions and to always be asking questions, to never assume that I had the full picture and to, to be open to imaginatively failing, to try to imagine being another being another person, and then to fail. And that storytelling was a really good way to practice this kind of imaginal empathy. I mean, what fertile ground for these ideas to arise. It makes all the sense in the world, um, but I know for so many, it's kind of this securitist route where you pick up pieces, and for you, you were kind of born right into the compost heap of all these ideas beautifully fermenting and mixing together. Now, I know before the show you said that you've been learning so much more about mushrooms and fungi even since the book was written. I guess from this mixing pot that was where you grew up, I mean, were mushrooms, mycelium, was that part of the conversation? How much did your own kind of exploration of mushrooms continue? You know, where did that kind of mix its way in or myceliate its way well, in, sporulate its way in? 
The answer is really, really personal and intense. Hmm. I will give a little bit of a trigger warning that there are some topics that will come up that if you have a history of violence or PTSD, you might not want to listen to. But when I was a child, I experienced pretty serious trauma and it left me with a really sensitive nervous system and a distrust of adults. And part of the way that I healed myself and took care of myself was spending a lot of time outside on the ground, looking at things on the ground. <laughs> and I was really lucky to grow up on a plot of land with forest, with dense forest leading up into the mountain. And I was obsessed with mushrooms. I thought that they were the manifestation of fairies. Like I knew that was in, in a certain way not true, but it also, they, they embodied for me a capricious nature outside of the world of humans where they could sometimes kill you, sometimes heal you. And mostly they didn't care about you. They had their own world going on. So I was always a mycophile. I always loved mushrooms. And of course I learned about them with books and I took walks and of course I was very interested in herbalism. I took an er herbalism apprenticeship and I learned about, you know, fungal medicine. But let me step back. When I was 16, I fell life-threateningly ill. And I was in and out of the hospital and it was incredibly um, unclear why my body was failing. And it took many, many years to get a correct diagnosis of connective tissue disease, a rare connect genetic connective tissue disease. And right as I got that diagnosis, I was falling in love with the research about mycorrhizal fungi <laughs> as a connective tissue in the soil. It's actually holding the soil together as like a sticky filament. And I realized that while my condition, my connective tissue disease didn't have a cure, it was quote unquote uncurable, I could complicate my anthropocentric idea of where a cure exists. Maybe my cure was outside my body and my relationship to my more than human kin to these fungi who I had loved for so long. And there also felt like something very synchronous about how I had loved fungi for forever and I had an insufficiency of connective tissue in my own body. And they seemed to be very good at doing that. So yeah, I think at that point, and that was about eight years ago, I really hooked on to fungi as being like my patron saint, my secular saint. I was like, I, these are the beings I will learn about. These are the beings I will tie my roots to. Wow, I think so many people can find themselves in that story. It's interesting, whether it be through illness like Lyme disease or, you know, a lot of people end up coming to the fungal queendom, kingdom, whatever you prefer, through that channel of trauma and pain. And there's, we know there's some answer there. Uh, my partner, my wife now, I uh, should get used to that. Uh, <laughs> my does. wife has, yeah, my wife. Um, my wife had a very traumatic injury to her spinal cord and realized, I think a lot of those same things about, you know, seeing, I don't even know if you want to call it symbolic healing, but it's that idea that it's going to be some other like metaphysical, some other connection, some other energy coming from a relationship or something that's going to give you what you need. So that's really potent to hear that and that, and that fungi were able to do that for you. Well, I mean, that all explains how we come to a book like The Flowering Wand. Uh, but what was that decision to start putting this knowledge into a book? And it seems, I mean, coming from this area where I'm sure you're just awash in so much information, just in that environment with parents who are kind of interested in these themes, there's just insights and ideas flying around, I can imagine. So like, yeah, I guess what inspired you to write a book? And then how could you ever 
take this ever evolving, growing body of knowledge and like translate it into anything that, you know, any like one book or one document? Uh, those are two massive questions. <laughs> two but... massive questions. <sighs> well, I think the important context, and we're talking about beings that, you know, can't be separated from their context. So we should honor that. The contextual nature of fungi, the contextual nature of our of our lives. I was interested in being a fiction writer and really interested in how modern fiction didn't seem to represent the convoluted, effervescent complexity of ecosystems. So I'm really interested in what I was calling ecological storytelling, storytelling where there were you could smell everything. There were many different trees and species that it was telling an ecosystem story rather than a human hero's journey. And so that was, I, I've always loved fiction and, and, and stories, and I've been very interested in how certain stories have been used as weapons to destroy other stories. So as I was, you know, finding my footing as a writing and making a lot of money as a ghostwriter, writing other people's books for them, I was completing my own novel, which was a retelling of the Gospels as an ecological green interpretation from a woman's perspective bringing to life all of the different plants and animals and social and anthropological complexities of the time of Jesus to really see that it was, a, you know, it was a complicated landscape rather than just a, a few set of characters and to see how uprooting them from their social, ecological, um, religious context, let them become the weapon of the empire that killed them. And so I was interested in doing that in fiction, mm. but... At the start of quarantine, I'd finished this book, gotten an agent for it, was reassured by many other writers that it would sell quickly, and it did not. And I was experiencing a lot of intensity in my own life. I was experiencing the end of a relationship, an incredibly intense moment with my health where it looked like my life would be severely foreshortened. I was quarantining alone. My book was not selling, and I had a crisis. I thought, I have to stop worrying about myself. Myself may not last that long. I may not get to live the stories I thought I was going to get to live. I may not be able to publish a novel under my own name. And I thought, I've done all this research on fungi and ecology and myth for my fiction. What if I wrote essays to keep myself alive? <laughs> like, what, what if I wrote essays as a way of keeping my own curiosity moving? You know, in T.H. White, um, writes in The Once and Future King, which is about King Arthur and Merlin, Merlin advises Arthur that the best way to not be sad is to learn something. So I was learning by writing. I was taking all of these different things and inappropriately combining and then posting them for free on social media so that other mycologists and scientists and mythologists and storytellers and cooks <laughs> and gardeners could interject and give me you know, redirections. So I wrote this in real time for free in an incredibly risky rotted way to keep myself alive at a moment in time when I was very, very ill and very isolated by nature of quarantine. I had no expectation that this would ever be published or shared. <laughs> this was like a really, I, I oftentimes say this is the book I would have not ordered off the menu. And I also, I wrote it because I was really saw in myself that you can't heal the feminine without also healing the masculine. That, you know, there's been a, a, an overfixation on the divine feminine, but if you're only giving a patriarchal narrative to the masculine, how can you expect them to embody more fertile narratives? So I thought I, I should try and see if there's something better, funkier, smellier, 
sexier out there? And it turned out there was, and I was just delighted. And I wrote it in three weeks. It was like a mad, I oftentimes say that it was like the cordyceps taking over the ants, that it felt like I'd inhaled spores and suddenly I was, it was an anguishing (laughs) that I was climbing up the stalk of something and becoming the vehicle, the mouthpiece for another being without totally knowing what I was doing. And at the end of it, my um, editor, I had an agent that was trying to sell my other book. My editor found me on social media and approached me and bought the book three weeks in, which is totally unheard of. So it's a very weird story. So the flowering wand, I like to say, is an actual compost heap. It was written in the open with many other people interjecting. It was it was a risky operation. I mean, that's an amazing story. And I love that idea of like ecology channeling through you or another organism channeling through you. I mean, I don't care what discipline it is and what creative discipline, whether it's like music or writing, people who make these amazing things are always like, yeah, I felt like this wasn't even me. Something was like moving through me, putting this on the page or putting this through the instrument. Uh, so that that's fascinating. And, you know, the more we learn about fungi, I would not be surprised if we find out there was a small sporulating <laughs> structure in certain people's brains, making them do certain things. I mean, it's it's not far-fetched in the least. Well, then I guess, you know, in that messy composty process, how did certain characters kind of come to be central to your retellings and the narrative that you put together for us? And just to give the listeners a backdrop, you know, Dionysus, Orpheus, Jesus. I mean, we're taking people from like, Greco-Roman and Western European myths and pulling out these male figures, but how do you select who to work with? Was it like a much bigger list or how did these certain characters put themselves on the page, if you will? Well, I think it's really important to work with what you know. Mm. And I had been a medieval studies major in college. So I'd studied the Arthurian myths and I'd also studied religion. And I was, and I wrote, you know, I spent eight years studying Jesus and the Mediterranean basin and the gods and pagan traditions that led up to Jesus and informed that whole culture. So I, as I started to write the book, I was drawing on the figures I knew really well. Like I wrote my senior thesis on Merlin and all of the different mythologies and folklore about Merlin. So of course I wrote about him because I'd spent so much time researching him. So it was really just bringing all of my, um, my friends on board who I'd been working with for a long, long time. But I really hope that the flowering one doesn't get interpreted as being comprehensive. I end the book by saying this is just the start of a conversation. You know, it's a monologue wanting to become a polyphony of many other people from many different locations bringing their mythologies, their folklore, and rewilding them from their own perspective. Well, and I think it does that wonderfully. And I think it also gives us all like an initial fluency and symbolism. I love that about it, where you were pulling apart certain symbols, whether it's in a tarot card or in a story and giving us, contextualizing it sometimes for the time and giving us some meanings, you know, and for you who grew up around this, maybe there's no like, yeah, suddenly I figured out the language of symbolism. But for people (laughs) that are interested in these kind of things and looking at myths, you know, do you have any kind of guidelines or I guess guiding pillars or principles about when we look at something, maybe it's historical, maybe it's mythological, Maybe there's not that big a difference between those two things. But when we look at symbols in these kind of documents from a time a time in the past, how do we develop kind of symbol 
fluency yet. And I know that's such a huge open-ended question, but it's just a skill I wish I had, a superpower I wish I had. Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think I want to approach it from kind of an oblique direction, which is that we have to remember that myths used to be a vessel for our most important environmental information about how to survive. And that in oral culture, the best way to transmit really important information from generation to generation is in a narrative that's compelling and easy to remember. So oftentimes, plants and animals and places get personified as deities or characters. And so, what you know, it's, I sometimes say that like, if you pour a mycorrhizal fungi into an ecosystem, it can become a map of relationships. And if you pour a myth into a place, it becomes a map of relationships, likewise. That right. it becomes, it, but it's a real map of real plants and animals. Of course, it's hard to see that when you're looking, thinking about them as anthropocentric, godlike beings doing dramatic, you know, romantic <laughs> um, narratives. But the truth is, if you plant them back in their context, you have to remember that each myth is the specific mushroom of a specific climatological moment of, you know, a certain kind of, there's precipitation, there's certain trees there, it's a certain moment, and it's going to be representative of that moment. And so I think that we have this idea that you can deracinate a myth from its context, from its web of relationships, bring it somewhere else, and it still makes sense. So I think a lot of these symbols don't make sense, and they're really hard to read, because they're not, they don't have a root system anymore to what they originally meant. Mm. You know, a great example is, in some of the parables of Jesus, who would have been called Yeshua or Yahashua in Aramaic in his Jewish culture. And his parables have been translated from Aramaic oral culture. He would have been talking, telling these stories to other people. And they've been transmitted through telephone of mistranslation into the language of the very people who were oppressing him, that he was opposing. And of course they lose their potency and then they get translated into England, English. And then they get, you know, shipped over to America. So they stop meaning anything. And my favorite is the parable, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. What does that mean? What's the symbolism there? Well, let's plant it. I, I oftentimes say, um, reroot, rewild, retell. Mm. So let's reroot it in second temple period Palestine. So you have a commercialized agricultural state. So the Romans have come in and built cities. And what they do is they give bad loans to farmers who can't pay them off. And then they seize their land. And you've created this unlanded, angry peasantry who are being oppressed violently all the time. And they can't even grow their own food. <laughs> and in fact, changes. when they can grow, I know. And when they can grow their own food, they have to pay it in taxes. And of course, so there's a really angry population who've been through a lot of trauma. And the kingdom at the time period, would have, the word that was actually used, Malkuda, would have meant something much more interactive and less hierarchical. It meant something like inside and outside cosmos. <laughs> and so that's also important to remember. So the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Inside and outside cosmos is like a mustard seed. So what's the mustard seed in that time period? We think now that it just means it's like a small seed that's a plant that grows. But if you're speaking to an unlanded peasantry who've been through years and years of imperial oppression, when you say that to them, as one of them, what you're saying is so the, mustard, the mustard green was the most pernicious weed. It would go into your crops and destroy them. So all of a sudden you can't feed your family, you can't pay the taxes, you would die. You would either starve or you'd go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> so saying the kingdom is not 
to come. The kingdom isn't some good place where everything is finally fair. The kingdom is right here, right now. So that's also radical. <laughs> that's kind of intense and hard to swallow. The kingdom is this moment right now where you're oppressed, you're hungry, you're cold. This is the divine. And it's the weed that's going to destroy your ability to take care of your family. Mm. Pretty intense. So when you reroute these stories, these parables, these myths, these folklore in their original setting, some, sometimes something much more radical and environmental comes to the, the surface. But then, of course, you can't transplant them into our time period now. You can't take this symbol and pretend like it's still relevant. So what I always say is, what kind of storytelling is it doing? And what would that storytelling look like now? For me, what it's telling me is to look at my network of kin in a five mile radius around my home to the plants and animals that are considered to be bad, that are considered to be a problem and say, what lessons do you have for me in combating imperial capitalist ecocide? So it's not always the exact same symbol as the time it was birthed in, but we can take that as a talisman, bring it forward yeah. and learn those lessons. And that was something so intriguing about hearing the stories and like the histories of the myths and relating different myths together of here's where this myth shows up in a different place. And here's where this myth got changed by a conquering culture. And there was even some interesting examples where myths in and of themselves became these um, became these vessels to tell the tale of an earth-based lunar culture getting taken over by a solar yeah. culture. And that's like baked into the myth. My question was that like intentional, did that just kind of get worked in there on almost a transpersonal level where someone got taken over by the ecology and was like, this story needs to be told. It's, it's really interesting to follow the, the histories of these myths and see where they were used as as a weapon and one place that stood out in this conversation when i read through the book was crete so i, I just threw out a bunch of things there oh, yeah. i just threw out crete i just threw out earth and sky and so, so why don't we talk about that a little bit i mean yeah that's i think that's a, the best case example truly yeah give us a little bit of examples of like what were these kind of earth cultures solar cultures what was crete uh, give us a foundation some of those dynamics so you see during the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean basin, you see a, a mythic system of um, earth reverent partnership cultures. And that's to use the phrase and the research of the historian and scholar Rihanna Eisler, who wrote an incredible book looking at all of the history in archaeology called The Chalice and the Blade. So you see in these cultures that there's a, there's a heavy focus on artistry and decorative art and beautiful architecture. And in the preponderance of material culture that is left to us, what we see is a focus on what I say is polyphonic iconography, which is you don't have a single female deity and you also don't have a single um, heroic individual. What you usually have are what you see originally on cave walls thousands and thousands of years before, which is herds of running animals, chevrons. You see swirls and spirals and labyrinths. You see um, sometimes a goddess figure flanked by lions and bulls and snakes, and occasionally men with their hands up in praise of these um, assemblages, these holobiont beings that are composed of many different species. And the really interesting thing is that Rian Eisler says that what a culture does not depict in its art can tell us as much about them as what it does depict. And what you don't see in these 
um, Mediterranean-based and Bronze Age cultures is depictions of violence or suffering or death or heroic individuals. Like you don't have monuments to kings at this time, but you do in certain places, but on Crete you don't. So Crete is, a lot of people say that Crete is the last holdout of this much earlier Paleolithic cave art sensibility. It's the last place it really thrives. But what happens is at a certain point, and there are many different theories. There's a theories, theory that Mount Terra volcano erupted and destabilized Crete, that there were successive sea people invasions. You know, there are a lot of theories about what destabilized their culture finally. But what we know is that the, the um, northern Greek populations came down and destroyed them and that they reinstated their own My Mycenaean culture. And when they did that, they retold a lot of the same myths that had lived there. And, you know, I think what they realized is you can't get rid of these myths. They're deeply entrenched in the people. They're rooted in the land. But what you can do is you can write over them and co-opt them so that they actually justify your violent extractive culture. <laughs> I think the best example is, so we have the, the Greek and then the Roman version of um, the Minotaur. And so the Minotaur is considered to be a monster, a bullhorned monster that eats humans at the center of the labyrinth, the Daedalus built. And his sister Ariadne um, is a princess and she knows the way through the labyrinth and she's the only one who knows the way through the labyrinth. And Theseus, the young Greek hero, you know, half deity, comes to Crete and tricks Ariadne or compels her, seduces her into giving the secret about how to kill the Minotaur, her brother, and kills the Minotaur, absconds with Ariadne, sleeps with her, discards her on Naxos, and goes off to become the epitome of the Greek hero, who slays the dragon, slays the, the monster. But if you actually look at the material culture and the first artifacts of Linear B, the earliest version we have of Greek that we can decipher on Crete that, that exists from before these invasions, what you see is that the bull and the dance with the bull was key and that the bull as being at the center of the labyrinth was not a monster. He had a name, which is Asterion for starry one. And if you look at many of the Crete festivals, they align with the arising of Sirius or Taurus in certain constellations. And so, of course, we, we and suddenly we also see in Linear B that Ariadne is called the Lady of the Labyrinth. Suddenly she's not a docile princess. She's the nature goddess who is in charge of sweetness and bull gods and lunar time and cyclical time rather than a hero's journey, solar time. And so we can see that you know, I oftentimes say that mother myths become monster myths. And, you know, that's not a total, that's a bit of a generalization because it's not just mother myths. When I say mother, I mean earth-reverent, partnership-based, egalitarian societies become stories where um, the original goddesses and lunar kings are turned into monsters. Yeah, yeah. Well, you find that throughout the book, these examples of you know, a man who is in communion with nature, he has stag horns, you know, I think it was Acteion, who was becomes a story of this hunter who was turned into a stag and eaten by his own dogs by a vengeful woman goddess when that wasn't really the original story. And the question I was just as you were saying that I, I couldn't help think of, do you think people at the time, as these myths were being written, kind of understood 
contextually, like maybe what was happening, what was being said. Because I asked, you know, how do we understand symbols and myths? Was this something people at the time probably got? And like, if a myth was changed to where suddenly, you know, and I'm going out of my depth because this wasn't in the book, so I don't know it, but like a Medusa figure, a woman, powerful woman with snake imagery was turned into this evil monster. Would people have been like, oh, look at that propaganda. Look how they just ruined Medusa. Well, actually, I, I do think I bring up Medusa, which is both Joseph Campbell and Robert Graves show oh, right. that, you oh, know, right. there's a long tradition of snake goddesses in the Mediterranean basin. And very obviously, what you see is the Greeks coming in, cutting off the heads of these statues. So what you're seeing is, is, a, little, is a mythic interpretation of a real historical event whereby the statues were destroyed. And we have, we have the representation of, of that destruction of the statues. We have these headless statues. Um, Destroying these deities and making them into a monster, making them into the head of Medusa that you hold up. Yeah. But I want to I want to shift back to your question about whether this is intentional or whether it happens in a kind of um, slow, slow, unintentional way. Yeah. And I think that the answer is both. And I want to actually swift shift to science, which is the most biological novelty doesn't necessarily happen by forking, but by fusion and moments of symbiosis. An endosymbiosis. When two, when two species and beings inappropriately fuse and create something completely new. You know, when plants and fungi decide to create mycorrhizal networks and teach plants how to develop the root systems that then terraform the myceliated um, landscape of everywhere we live and provide the very food we eat today. You know, our very cells are the product of two simple bacteria half digesting each other. <laughs> so it's like, the basis of, of a lot of life are these moments of fusion. And just like that's true in science and in, in biology, it's also true in culture, which is cultures are always syncretically, the word is syncretism, so it's symbiosis in um, science and it's syncretism in anthropology and religion, which is two cultures meet, overlap, and fuse. And, and that's, all, that's how it's always happened. However, Sometimes it happens in a way that is overtly um, oppressive. And that's, that's really the tool of colonialism and of empire and Rome. Um, Rome inheriting the Greeks' expansive nature and then perfecting it. And what that means is it's not like a symbiosis whereby both beings kind of find a new way to collaborate. It's one culture comes in, eats the other, and takes the parts that it likes. <laughs> and when you, when you look at a lot of these myths, they kind of represent to me these cells where like, yeah, there's the mitochondria of Crete, but mostly it's this Roman culture around it. Yeah. And was what was it intentional? Well, I think all, here's a good case example. I think oh, this happens naturally. So I think what I was saying before is this happens naturally. We see it across the world, which is cultures bump into each other. They exchange. There's a semi-porous boundary. Suddenly, one person's sun god is co-opted into another's. It, it's how culture works. Cultures move. Myths move. You know, we all move. But I also think that there are overt propaganda smear campaigns. And I think a great example is that Dionysus, who's a pre-Greek god who gets co-opted into the Greek pantheon and then changed into Bacchus in the Roman pantheon, is a very, very subversive character. He's very associated with slave revolts and with outcasts and with women and with ecstatic revelry that would oftentimes disrupt the normal um, routine of an empire. And for a long time, he was the most popular deity, but then he inspired two of the almost most successful revolts against the Roman Empire, the revolt of Spartacus, 
who is whose partner was a Dionysian priestess, and Pukula Anya of Campania. And so what you see is that Dionysus suddenly is a really, really dangerous deity. And so he is the first instance of an empire outlawing a god. That the Romans kill 7,000 people during this revolt of Pukula Anya, and then they outlaw him. And when they outlaw him, they submit him to a, a smear campaign whereby this lithe, wild, feral creature that inspires revolts becomes this drunk wino, this drunk wino who is good for nothing and, and, and just kind of inspires parties. Right. So, and that was a deliberate campaign. You can really see all of the historians and writers at the time working hard to undermine the vitality of this earlier tradition. Fascinating. So there is like a real biological growth, a horizontal myth transfer, if you will, that occurs <laughs> yeah. naturally. And then there is kind of the, the genetic engineering. I mean, someone coming in and specifically yeah. trying to change something for a purpose. Yeah, I mean, terraform. I mean, yeah. Yes, to terraform, to colonize a myth. No, it's it's really interesting to see that interplay of history and mythology. You know, this book in particular deals with these stories of the masculine seemingly in an attempt to expand our conception of like what the masculine is. Uh, and there's so many things to get into there from the book, but I, why don't we start? One thing I want to make sure I define in this era where my, I myself have so much to learn about concepts of sex and gender. So when we use a word like masculine, uh, you know, I am someone who identifies as biologically male. I feel like I have a lot of classically quote unquote masculine attributes. But when you say that word and when you like, what, what are you speaking to? How do you define that? So I think it's really important to identify between like assigned male at birth, biological sex, which is a kind of, you know, shortcut that's taken in the sciences to make certain conclusions, but doesn't necessarily um, explain the diversity of sexual and uh, sexual and biological expression in any species. Right. Um, there's a great book that just came out about this called Bitch by zoologist Lucy Cook that I really, really recommend. But I, I think I think about gender as it's been enshrined in human culture as a pattern of behavior, a morphic field. So a morphic field is, you know, it, it, Rupert Sheldrake came up with the idea to explain how certain patterns are um, maintained in nature. And, but it's not necessarily a, a matter or something you're born into. It's a pattern that you fall into. And the more that it's practiced, the more likely it is to occur. And I think the problem is right now is that one type of masculinity has been practiced for so long that it's really easy to fall into that field of behavior. But the truth is that it used to be a much, much bigger field <laughs> um, yeah. with many, many more options. And it doesn't seem particularly generous to people who I who identify. So I sometimes think, you know, in a very simplistic idea of gender, we think of two genders or we think of like three genders, you know, people who are non-binary, people who are female, who, people who are male. But I think of gender as being like a reticulated web, like a mycelial system and you are always traveling. So, you know, mycelial networks are oftentimes supracellular, so they don't have discrete cells. They have the septa that open up so that their protoplasmic material can flow through the web. 
Yeah. I oftentimes think that gender is in a supracellular state. It should be at least, which is it's constantly flowing along different rhizomes, different hyphal threads into different expressions. And just like our bodies are kept alive by their ability to change, <laughs> so should our genders be kept flexible and resilient by their ability to grow and adapt and change. So I oftentimes say to people who feel like they have to figure out what their identity is, let your, let your identity lunate. So the moon is always the moon. But what if we thought of the moon as a bowl? So sometimes the moon is full, sometimes it's crescent, sometimes it's waxing, sometimes it's waning. It's never static, it's always both. And what if on a 28-day cycle, along with the moon, you let your self-expression change and lunate and shift? Well, everything needs to move, everything needs to be resilient and adapt from gender to our self-identity to myths. I mean, everything we're talking about needs to be able to move and shift and adapt. And I was just remembering, you know, I always think of my wife as one of my greatest teachers. And she's the one who told me, you know, this whole thing about complete self-knowledge. She's like, no, you don't want to totally know yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> you want to be surprised. You, you want to have things come out of you and be like, where did that come from? Uh, so I, I love that idea that, yeah, don't have yourself completely figured out. Give yourself that space to breathe and ferment and change. I, I absolutely love that definition. But as we're talking about like earth traditions and solar traditions, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but it sound, it seems like this earth tradition had a much more, I don't want to throw words out that aren't kind of something you believe in, but like earth traditions see kind of a more ecological self, a more permeable self. There's a lot more fluidity to how they see, I mean, masculine and feminine in a lot of ways. And then the solar tradition kind of has these patriarchal forms. Uh, and, you know, those symbols I love, the thyrsus of kind of this earth tradition and the sword, kind of this solar tradition coming to the fore. You know, in reading the book, I think we all like the earth tradition. We all like the thyrsus, the earth tradition. It's fecund, it's abundant, it's fluid, it's flexible. We love it. So, and again, I'm throwing massive questions at you, but uh, I love it. <laughs> why did this, the solar kind of sword wheeling patriarchal belief system, what needs did that serve maybe for those cultures? Because ostensibly they kind of had a choice because at the time, you know, when Crete was still around, some of these other cultures yeah. were still around, they knew that was a belief system, the snake and the deeps of kind of these feminine, I mean, of these earth systems was there. And they, for some reason, were drawn toward this solar sword, singular hero. So, I mean, how did that even take root or what needs do you think that served for people? Well, it's always interesting to perform some kind of mythological forensics, but there's no way we're ever going to find the actual cause. So I just want to predicate what I say with, you know, this is all imaginative yeah. and you know, yeah. impossible. And I do think, you know, borrowing from Joseph Campbell and, you know, a lot of the big mythologists from the tw past 20th century, I did use in the book the term solar, but I think I would shy away from it now having written the book a couple of years ago. And I would use the, 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 difference I would make is partnership, you know, earth-based and dominator cultures that are mm. about ascension without also including the descent. So cyclical cultures and then cultures that have only one direction. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, what I, I, what I use is a lens of cultural somatics. So just as we can look at an individual body and how trauma, it, it, how it reacts to trauma in certain ways, so do cultures react to trauma as like a cultural body. 
And it's really interesting to me to see that a lot of these dominator cultures gain ground. So they were around, but they weren't, you know, the majority, but they really, really blossom after this, the collapse of the Bronze Age. And the collapse of the Bronze Age probably combined a lot of different elements. There were massive droughts. There was incredible dislocation of populations. There was genocide. There were probably volcanic eruptions. There may have been many different catastrophic traumatic events that happened to people over a very short period of time. All of the five major civilizations that had been in, in charge of the Mediterranean basin for thousands of years fell within like 50 years. They were gone. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. And so yeah. what happens, I oftentimes think of like, what happens when you experience trauma? One thing that happens is you disassociate, you know, as a way to protect yourself. When the body is going through pain, you create a split between mind and body. And what do we see directly after the collapse of the Bronze Age? We see Platonic philosophy. We see in many different religions a split between mind and matter, between ascent and descent. So beforehand, what you did is you had was a much more holistic idea of spirituality, that death was included, body, the body was included, animals were included, and suddenly the body and your, and your actual physical somatic life could be very painful and hard. So it was much easier to want to ascend and to create in even even at a distance another place that you could strive towards. So you see that in philosophy and you also see it in religion. And so I think these dominator cultures arise alongside this mind-matter split that then of course eventually becomes Cartesian dualism. I oftentimes say that like theology has just become science. It, it, you can change the terminology but the split is the same. Um, and we should be really careful about understanding that and how it could inflect our science, our seemingly objective science. But yeah, so I think the split between mind and matter starts as a survival mechanism. And I want to be deeply compassionate about that. But that survival mechanism over time becomes problematic, just as survival mechanisms on an individual basis can become problematic after the traumatic event. So yeah, I think a, a lens of cultural semantics is what I use to try and massage why that could have happened. I, I absolutely loved that insight, especially you brought it up in the context of the Gnostics yeah. and dealing with just, I think it's called like, what's the matter? Uh, and this <laughs> I, and this idea that, yeah, this total separation from matter, we're just going to transcend this ugly, dirty place. And when you related that to someone kind of popping out of their body or popping out of matter because of intense trauma, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. And of course, this book is written for kind of certain times and places. It's starting a conversation. But you wonder about certain Eastern traditions where there's kind of like, let's meditate until we totally ascend into the spiritual yeah. out of the body. And I wonder if we would find some of those similar patterns of repression of those societies and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I I never want to universalize or generalize and try totally. and say that an explanation totally. explains everything. And I also want to honor that all of these religions are incredibly fertile and have saved many people. So I'm, ne I'm never demonizing any religion. I do think that when your ascension doesn't also honor the descent in the body, it can inspire behavior that is not ecologically aware. So it's just something to note that when you're not paying attention to your body and to its surroundings, sometimes it's easy to not respect those surroundings. Well, and that's something that you brought up too in the context of Jesus, that he just ascends and he doesn't come back down. And then you talk about other yeah. heroes that have kind of been related to him over time, but how 
a key part like Osiris, like their return, their body is returned to the earth. And, you know, when I was reading that, I, again, I thought, I wonder if the cultures knew had this ecological overtone, like they knew about this, but I think it gets back to your purpose of myths that they were, sounds like they might've been keenly aware, like, yes, that was the message. Oh yeah. I mean, Osiris in Egypt was the Nile. He, I mean, he wasn't representative of the Nile. The Nile was Osiris. Osiris was the Nile. <laughs> and his death and rebirth, mythologically, that happened in the cyclical time. So, so, I mean, in Egypt, they had a very different idea of time. They didn't have an idea of, of Darwinian linear time, like sequential time that we have now. They had a very different temporality. They thought there was cyclical time, the time of seasons that eternally repeated. And then there was the time that was eternal that the pharaohs and the dead entered that was always present, but didn't change. And so, so Osiris was like this connective tissue between those two temporalities, that he was the cyclical um, inundation and then winnowing of the Nile. And he was also representative of that deep time, that deep embrace of the entire biosphere. So he was, he was really teaching as you celebrated him, you actually celebrated what was happening in your environment. And in his myth, when he's killed, his body is mulched back into Egypt. Yeah. And in fact, what I say is the king becomes the kingdom physically. He physically becomes his own kingdom. And so there's this acknowledgement that you have to become edible. You have to feed yourself to your environment eventually and, and continue the cycle. That if you interrupt the cycle, you know, problems happen. As you were telling that story, yeah. I love the part where you talked about too that you know, the the God, it, it isn't a singular thing. Like it's an assemblage, but it's also not just organismal. It's like movement. It's, I think at one point you called it a birth. Like, and this is where in reading the book, I'm trying to make my mind more flexible to think of these things that I have crystallized as like, oh, the God Osiris, that's an individuated being. He's doing things. And yeah, when you talk about this process where he is the winnowing and expansion of the Nile, that I mean, it's such a more comprehensive vision where gods are almost these forces or collections of connected forces with an ecological underpinning. It gives a really powerful compass then to nat for us all to navigate some of these stories with that thought in there. And I will say as someone who really celebrates the sun, it might be because I'm a Leo, but like, I love the sun. I love to hear sun your too. new kind of <laughs> distinction where it's like, huh, it's not yeah. just solar and earth. It's more like dominator and partnership, ally, cooperation societies. Yeah. And I also, lately I've been thinking a lot about how the complicating this idea of we get over fixated on anything. So when we're responding to the dominant culture with, with something new, suddenly we overfixate on it at the expense of, of nuance. Right. And so I think that we always have to complicate like the eternal descent. The truth is, you know, most of life is heliotrophic, like it is like orienting towards the sun and created by the sun. So sometimes I like to say that we are connected on a rhizome of photons to the sun, that, you know, everything is built from light from the sun. You know, plants are, are making it into their very bodies, you know, fungi are taking it from the plants, you know, animals are eating those plants and making their own bodies that we then eat that we are all tied, that root systems go into the ground, but they also, that photon root systems tie us to the sun. 
I love that. A photon. The sun is like. That's the first time I've shared that. But yeah, I think that's what I've been thinking about lately. This myceliated web of photons. I'm absolutely in love with that concept. But I guess then for the masculine of today, again, I asked, you know, what role did these kind of dominator stories and myths fill for people at the time? And I love how you've answered that. So now as kind of masculine men, if we want to use that word, have moved forward, we've kind of clung to a lot of these same archetypes, the very limited dominator toolkit of like three or four archetypes of what we can be. Our society is replete with examples of like a very static masculine where certain things like success, and I hate to like use these words, but it's just what's in the sphere right now of like being an alpha and being dominant. And that's like, that is that is really embodying the masculine. So is when we look at these other archetypes presented in myths, how do you think men or those who identify, you know, in this moment as men, how do you think those archetypes enable us to expand or, or what do these archetypes invite in terms of positive change and maybe getting out of some of these static modes that the, the dominator society we've lived in has given to us? So I like to think of patriarchal capitalism as narrative dysbiosis. So when your your gut is damaged by disease, by too many antibiotics, all of the good, all of the bacteria are killed, both good and bad, and it leaves behind a lot of open real estate. And in that open real estate, a monologuing pathogen like Candida can take up way too much space and cause real, real physiological disturbance. And normally that pathogen is still present, but it's kept in check by a, by, by a diversity of different microflora. And so what I really think is just like humans, humans have the hubris to think that we can manage whole ecosystems. <laughs> but the truth is what you really want to do is, you know, buttress up biodiversity and let the ecosystem think on its own because it has a much, much bigger cognition than you. And it's going to do much more complex play. Um, and so I think that what I'm really interested in is, you know, the metaphor of probiotics and of composting. I, you know, I always say I work by addition, not subtraction. You know, I want to add more stories to see if we can put in check these monologuing pathogens that say that the masculine is about domination, about being an alpha, about, you know, gaining all the resources at the expense of other people. And I'm not saying we should destroy it. I think that when you try to destroy something, you oftentimes rearticulate the exact system you're trying to uh, get rid of. I think what I want to do is just put it in a gut with so many other microflora of stories that it's kept in check. And so what I'm really interested in is starting a conversation where there are a lot of different archetypes. And I also, I mean, as someone who's very, very interested in ecology and is worried that myth, as it was deracinated from its environmental roots, has become too anthropocentric, what I'm really interested in is can we look to archetypes from nature, from fungi, from insects, from plants? Like we, we're only looking for archetypes from our, from our human world, but we might have a lot to learn from... Um, different beings. I love that. And that's what I love telling people when they ask me about mushrooms or fungi, like you don't understand the most exciting thing about these organisms for me is how it shifts human narratives. 
because exactly. we're constantly yeah. looking for something to model off of, whether it's, oh, this person is the lion or medieval times, you know, this person in this role in society is the head, you guys are the feet or so what does it mean now that we have this new prompt <laughs> to try to like stick our narrative, map our narratives to like, oh, this has, you know, split gill has 30,000 genders and look how these things cooperate. Yeah, exactly. It's like, man, how does that shake things up? And I love that. And I love and that was at the end of the book is question I had throughout. It's like, man, why does this exist and persist? And I love that you brought that back to this kind of ecological narrative. This thing is overexpressed and we need to bring some of these other masculine archetypes, symbols, ways of being back into the conversation to kind of put this thing back in check and yeah, not necessarily get rid of it. There are times where that may be useful. I, I guess, yeah. I guess for me, there might, there might be times where being able to swing the sword you know, my wife likes to say cut through the BS is kind of useful. And like, yeah, sometimes going from point A to point B linearly is useful, but then it's nice to be able to pop out and be super flexible and play a liar and be fluid. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think what we need is more options, not less. Yeah. And, and when you have yeah. that toolbox, so I think we're at a moment when we're about to see really unpredictable social and climatological change. And what we need isn't one idea of how to respond, but an improvisational toolbox that will help us to have many different ways of responding to unpredictability. And, and so what I really want is an improvisational fluency. So can, how, can, how can we begin to develop that muscle? Yeah, well, and I think that's like a tangible thing from reading this that that affected me as someone who's identifies as a man. I thought, yeah, how am I? Can I embody some of these more playful and flexible archetypes in certain situations where my default might to get be frustrated and get angry because I'm not like getting playful or being humorous. So I think there's a very tangible takeaway. Another part that I really liked uh, was for the masculine. You gave some some tools that classically were considered in the domain of the feminine. And one that sticks out because you reference the symbology is the tarot. Uh, how do you feel like the tarot is a useful tool? And how do you feel like uh, the masculine could use this tool to, to great benefit? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote the book, I had been making money as a tarot reader. So I was naturally drawing on those archetypes. So I wasn't saying that the tarot was more important than any other epistemology or or or, or oracular tool. Right. What I was mostly saying, and I want to summon the work of um, the scholar Mina Salami, who says that we've been so stuck in this Europatriarchal rational epistemology, this this way of knowing that's actually very, very narrow, that we need to widen our ways of knowing, that there are organismic ways of knowing, there are sensual ways of knowing, there are intuitive ways of knowing that our ancestors used all the time. And they actually, those tools help them predict the weather, help them respond to shifting climates, you know, they were really, really useful. So what I'm actually, so I'm trying to widen it up from, widen this conversation out from the, the tarot by saying that how can we give sensuous, intuitive knowledge back to the masculine, especially given that the masculine was a magician for a lot of mm -hmm. history? You know, some of the earliest cave art are of these masculine figures in this magician role holding a wand. I love that. And I love getting comfortable with these other ways of knowing that don't require pure reason. And again, I say this has been relegated to the domain of the feminine because really it's been those forces in my life that have brought these things to my attention and gotten me more comfortable with 
that kind of mystery. So I just loved seeing that in your book of like, hey, here is again something tangible that if you are a man, if you are a man reading this, here's something you can do to really expand and start to embody some of some of these other ways of of being. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, but I did want to make sure we cover Yeshua and Jesus. I love the description of him as like this magician, this wandering magician with nature-based teachings. It made him seem a lot more interesting and approachable than the guy that I saw most of my childhood, the symbol that I saw, which was kind of a, a starving man on a cross. I thought, man, I would love to see yeah. a, a wandering trickster rabbi who's teaching me about nature. Uh, so in particular, you know, talk about that figure of Jesus and kind of what you learned about him and about his teachings and, you know, maybe how he changed and in particular, you know, why it's important to really recontextualize a figure who is kind of the central piece of, of current kind of Judeo-Christian beliefs. Yeah, so I want to compl um, complicate the use of Judeo-Christian hmm. because it's a very complicated hmm. term because the truth is that the Jewish people have been oppressed by the Christian people who came and co-opted their teachings and then oppressed them and genocidally killed them. So it's it's we have to be really careful when we, we use that. Yeah, lumping those two together yeah, does not seem appropriate given that context. No, no, but it's it, it's typical. Most people do it. It's just something that I, I in my work try and be really sensitive to, especially because what I'm really interested in is replanting Jesus as a failed Jewish teacher. Like as as someone who was at the start of his teaching, was really, really combative, was was complicated, was heterodox even within his own religion and then was killed before he could develop his teachings. But that if we replant him in, so, okay, let me back up a little bit. So the Jesus we have today is the Jesus that Rome gives us, is, is the Jesus of Rome, of empire, of Constantine. A lot of people, a lot of scholars say that, you know, the Jesus of today is Constantine's Jesus. He's a Jesus out of pace with the actual figure by many, many years, by, by landscapes, by language, by spiritual practice. So it's important when those translations start to happen to think about what they mean. <laughs> How does Jesus become the figurehead of the very empire that he was trying to combat with his anti-imperial storytelling? I, of course, did this research for a fiction, a piece of fiction. Um, but I was really interested in, in how this tragedy happens, how we how we turn a tragedy into a miracle <laughs> and how this person who seemed to be very nonviolent, really interested in inviting everyone to the table and healing everybody and opposing empire suddenly becomes, you know, the figurehead for sexism and exclusionism <laughs> and um, colonialism. Like, how does that happen? And how it happens is that you have this really revolutionary figure, this individual who is Galilean. So they're, you know, Galilee was the, the northern part of, there was Judea and Galilee. And Judea was situated around Jerusalem. And it was much more scholarly. And um, it definitely was more Hellenized. It was more trying to collaborate with the Romans. And not in a way, I mean, in no way saying collaboration is a bad thing. They're trying to stay alive and keep their religion alive after having been subsequently dislocated to Babylon and oppressed by many empires. They're like, we would like to keep our religion alive. We would like to be able to live. In Galilee, you have a much less educated peasantry who are much more revolutionary and thus are also submitted to much more violent campaigns against the Romans. So there will be a revolt by Judas the Galilean and then 2,000 women and children will be killed. That happened when Jesus, the historical figure, was probably around four. 
So just we're planting him in a context of he probably he probably couldn't read and write. That the mm. the literacy of the time period has been greatly overestimated. Only two percent of the Judean population could read. So e even in part of the elite culture, only two percent of the elite culture could even read. So if he's a Galilean peasant, he's probably part of the the giant tradition of oral storytelling. And at that time period, Judaism really focused on your ability to extrapolate on religious texts and talk about them in conversation. So that's also a totally different thing, which is, can your, can your spirituality shift? Can it change? Can it be relational? Can it be responsive to your circumstances? And so there's so much more complexity when you begin to plant this person back in their sociopolitical, ecological context. And so I'm in no way trying to say that Jesus is an important religious figure who could be helpful now, but given how much damage he's done, what would it mean to look back at who he may have actually been before he was consciously mistranslated by empire? Yeah, and I just love your willingness to tackle a character like that. And for someone like me who was raised Christian, Catholic, this was all new information. And it, you just think, why weren't we taught maybe some of this basic history that would help us understand <laughs> this historical figure better? So I, I just loved your willingness to like play with this and see maybe the truth behind this and how we can better recast or understand. And, you know, that leads us to the kind of the wrap of the book, which is so beautiful, which is like bringing a lot of these kind of different masculine archetypal figures, characters together in kind of your own retelling of returning, yeah. returning them to the compost heap and giving them some, really giving them some, some healing I mean, is that what we need to do? Do we need to kind of heal and re-understand, recontextualize, plant these characters back into the earth they came from, and then they'll be able to offer us beautiful insights and narratives once more? Uh, do we need to create entirely new characters? Do we need to do both? I mean, what is what is the future of our mythic storytelling in kind of our westernized culture where these characters predominate? Great question. So I think that, you know, we were talking about this before the interview began. There's nothing new in the world in terms of material. We are recombinatory re silhouettes of cosmic dust. And that, you know, there are maybe you look new, but you're old. <laughs> your, your, your body, I oftentimes say your body is an ancestor that, you know, yeah, literally, literally combined you know, there could be matter in you from a dinosaur, from, you know, a Cambrian lake, which is for me that my spirituality is very biological. Like who needs, who needs stories about sky gods when if you look at deep time, you're like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> um, ancient microbes be my God. Yeah. They knew how to do things. I mean, I oftentimes say like the microbes that sustainably kept the biosphere um, stable for millions of years should be the people we really look to. But to answer your question, I think what we can do is we have been harmed collectively and personally by certain myths, you know, myths of capitalism, a certain kind of white Christianity have, have wreaked harm in our lives. So it's helpful to compost them, mm -hmm. to reroute them, to rewild them, to mulch them with new stuff and see if they sprout something new. But I do think that right now it's about, we need to be, we need to work across disciplines. 
Like, I think, I, I really think we need to create an ecology of practices, to borrow is, Isabella Stenger's term. Like, we, we need to take mythology and put it in conversation with psychology and with science and with somatics and with activism. And I think right now the best thinking isn't going to happen in one discipline. It's going to happen interstitially. So can we take our compost of myths and offer them to other disciplines to see if they could, could spark something new? I really like to put things together that aren't supposed to be together. Like I, that's why I use the compost heap metaphor a lot, which is you throw a lot on it that's not supposed to touch, and then suddenly you have a lot of wildflowers. Yeah, absolutely. And you wonder if at the time when so many things like science and magic and alchemy and psychology were kind of blended together with different practitioners, and many of these stories and narratives probably emerged from that kind of cross-disciplinary gestalt that came up with these various characters or transformed existing characters. I mean, it's a fascinating, a fascinating trip through time. And you answer one of my other kind of big questions I had, which is, you know, what is Sophia Strand's spirituality? Uh, and, <laughs> and I guess to kind of continue on with that, how has your view of your physical reality, your like interpretation of this reality changed as you've gone through the process of examining myths and then understanding deep ecology and yet having looking at your hand and seeing a Precambrian lake, you know, <laughs> how does that change kind of how you move and how you see the world? And what is your kind of spirituality today? Thank you for asking. So I call myself a neo-troubadour animist. You know, I want to be one of those. was a tradition, was a, a, a wandering tradition of bards in medieval Europe that would tell love stories. And an animist is, you know, a very generalized anthropological term for many different practices that, that you know, if we really simplify it, it, believe that everything is alive. But I believe that everything is alive differently than me. And that keeps me asking questions. It keeps me dynamic and it keeps me humble. And so I think my spirituality is, well, I think my spirituality is like, a friend recently called me a bio-theologian, which is I find science to be deeply aligned with my spirituality. That for me, I'm really interested in matter and how science provides a portal into magic that doesn't need to be supernatural, that's inherently natural. <laughs> and that's where I find the deepest comfort are in these deep timescale stories of ecosystems and collapse and symbiosis. Um, so I think my spirituality is, is microbial and promiscuous and leaky. <laughs> I love that. I love that definition of spirituality. Uh, and I think it hits on so many people that I've spoken with who really dive into the world of microbia and mycology. They kind of come away and that is the spiritual following. So maybe there will be a church of the microbial <laughs> that will emerge. Well, will there's, emerge. Have, you, have you heard of the work of, of Shiv Watkins and microanimism? No, but that sounds like exactly no, what I'm talking about. Check it about. out. It's amazing. Yes, it's kind of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And you have to wonder what new myths will emerge from that. You know, will a future story of the Minotaur involve microbes or will we cast these characters in a microbial world? Something I've been fascinated recently is uh, with an artist who uh, is very cognizant of playing with scales and how we think there are these different huh. worlds because there are these different scales, but they're all happening all at once. So the microbial, all at once. the microbial story is just as important. I mean, it's happening right now. It's the exact, so I'm excited to see how the microbial myths will 
change. And I love the word mythic mycelium, but how the microbial myths will emerge and change. And that gets into, you know, what the future work is for you. And I, like I said before the show, you're an extremely prolific writer. <laughs> I love reading all of your poetry. I just, I'm like, how much oh, thank you. can one person write like such well-written stuff? Um, so many like heavy ideas that you're kind of like sticking your hands in and playing with. So what are the future work or projects uh, that you have in mind or want to bring into being? Well, thank you. I think I'm in a season of sporulation, but I will need to decay in a little bit. Right now, my novel, which is my rewilding of the Gospels, comes out in the summer. Mm. So that's my kind of actual ecological storytelling. That The flowering wand is a lot about the theory and the scholarship and the ecology. And then the Madonna secret is like, can I actually walk the walk? <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> I did walk the walk. And then my upcoming book is a lot about recontextualizing disability in an ecological lens. So using deep ecology to really look at what it means to be sick without a cure. Um, I oftentimes say that the body is a doorway, that your wounding is a portal out of an anthropocentric narrative. And so that book is being finished as we speak. Yeah, and there's so much there to the transformative power of pain and trauma and how it can be a portal. Um, that's fascinating. I'm excited to hear it. And like I referenced that last chapter in the book of the retelling of these masculine wounded figures coming together with their spear wounds and with their, and kind of going back at, I thought it was so well-written. I thought she needs to write us new myths. So I'm very excited to read that future work. Thank you. Uh, and of course, we'll include all the links to all the pages and everything in the show notes, but where can people find you and connect with you? So I like to give away a lot of work for free because I have been a starving artist who's benefited from other artists' generosity. So I post a lot of essays for free on my Substack, sophiestrand.substack.com. And if you want a more private, intimate relationship with me, I sometimes post, you know, I post two essays a month privately if you want to support me financially. But you don't have to, because I also post a lot for free. I'm on Instagram at Cosmogony, um, which will be in the show notes because it's hard to spell. And yeah, I think I think that's that's it. I'm on Facebook. I'm on all social media. While I'm here with you, what does cosmogony mean? Because I throw the word around cosmology <laughs> all the time. And I thought cosmogony, what, what does that mean? Does well, that mean? cosmogony is actually an astronomical term, which becomes a mythological term. It's the birth of a universe. But the spelling of mine is off. It includes a Y because it comes from indigenous scholar Paula Gunn Allen's miss intentional misspelling with an I to include the gyne for, for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be honest, I picked that Instagram handle six years ago. And six years ago, I had 200 Instagram followers. <laughs> and I also very much identified as female. And now I still identify as female, but on a rhizomatic continuity with non-binary. So I, I'm definitely more flexible and, and less static in my identity. So I don't know if I would have picked that had I chosen today. Well, I think it, for one who dives into and opens up universes and invents new universes, I think there is some appropriateness there. And as much as we joked before the show that we're kind of like over mushroom metaphors, I love your fluency with it to use it at times that it works. And yeah, I just I just enjoy your wordplay, your way of seeing the world, not to be too profuse with praise, but I, I just really enjoy it and I enjoyed speaking with you. Um, so to wrap things up, I'll ask three questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And the first one is just a mushroom or fungus, and we could expand this to microbe, but a mushroom or fungus that you love and why, and this has no pressure of being a favorite. It might've been just one you saw this morning and you were kind of reminded of an old friend. Okay, so 
I, this is a mushroom I've had a long relationship with, are fa- false paracels. That there is a circle of false paracels that live near me mm. that have refruited year after year and in this kind of inconceivable way. And then they fruit like eight times and they're this big. And they're such a great example of how a mushroom looks like an individual, but it's just a reproductive flourish of a larger individual below ground. And I go and they're like my, my church. I go and visit them. When they fruit up, it feels like a celebration. I have such an intimate relationship with them and they've come up year after year. And every year I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it again because they're so outrageous, but they do. So false parasols. That is a powerful force worthy of worship. And as much as uh, so many of us have said that, like, yeah, I worship microbes and mushrooms. And just in reading your book, yeah, that's probably where all of this worship came from in the first place. Like explicitly, they knew that they were talking about seasons and emerging organisms. And so, yes, that is, uh, we can all worship the mushroom and the false parasol is certainly a showy one worthy of worship. (laughs) And then broadly, what has this relationship with fungal organisms that you pointed out is dynamic and changing and ever deepening? What has this relationship given to you? And this can be spiritual lessons, lessons in resilience. You know, what have these organisms given to you? To be careful not to talk about fungi as monoliths, because there are millions of different fungal stories. I will say that many, many different fungal stories have offered me many different things. I think what they represent is like an, ex, an encyclopedia of different strategies. And, and I, I think that they're very tricky across, across different expressions. They are always very good at surviving and they're very interrogative. Like, I love that fungi are willing to play with other dangerous beings and, you know, share bodies and do things that are a little risky. I think that they, they, ha- they embody the trickster archetype sometimes, although I will not universalize. So I will say that many different fungi have taught me different things. You know, mycorrhizal fungi teach me that it's important to let my roots flow into other roots. You know, um, reishi teaches me to be adaptogenic to um, tailor my approach to different situations. You know, I, I, I'm always looking to mushrooms for advice. That's beautiful. Not approaching fungi as a monolith and think about all the capacities we can learn from all the multivariate fungi. And I was just reminded of something from your book where you talked about, you know, the kind of the dangers of naming something and what happens yeah. when you name something. When you talked about that, all the different species of fungi, I'm reminded of kind of mad scientist Phil Ross, who just in talking about the millions of species, naming isn't the thing anymore. We're going to have to get beyond our penchant to name and try to pin an identity on something. We're going to have to develop a different relational style because it's going to be impossible. We don't have 2 million years to name everything. (laughs) No. And also like something like lichen, where it's a composite of all of these different beings, like how do you name it? Like taxonomically, how is that even possible? (laughs) Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Even much less once you have that name for a mushroom man, you're not honoring that individual of that exactly. species, of, of that colony. Yeah, it definitely mushrooms are kind of the name breaker. We're going to have to get over that. And then the final question is just if there's a book you're reading that's impacting you or maybe a couple, you know, sometimes I'll tell Oh, there's so many all the time. There's so many good ones. One good short book that's really good at proposing a kind of erotic biological spirit spirituality is Enlivenment, Enlivenment by Andreas Weber, who's a philosopher biologist and friend and in my upcoming course. So Enlivenment is such a great way of developing a kind of biological spirituality. 
I love that book. Um, I, I really enjoyed Ed Young's An Immense World in that it explored the different sensory worlds. Speaking of scale and how all these things are happening at once, so many different creatures have a completely different sensory apparatus. The world is different for them, <laughs> except it's happening right alongside you. And that was a book that really was magical to me. And is there another right now that I'm thinking of? Um, I think that's it for right now. Yeah, An Immense World and Enlivenment are two fantastic books. Well, I think two hugely expansive things to add to the repertoire there. I love asking authors about favorite books because, of course, they're going to have great ones. Well, uh, Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I had so many questions. I'm trying to pack so much together because your work was really impactful for me. And I appreciate you taking that jumble and like straightening it out in, I don't even want to say straightening it out, but giving it some kind of shape and form that was really pleasant to listen to and gave a lot to the listeners. Uh, just thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Well, Darren, it was an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you for offering such incredibly nuanced and thoughtful questions.